Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. So we're going on a walk today. Kids, we're going on a walk today. We're going to have to use our imagination because obviously we're sitting in a chair, right? I'm standing up here on this platform. We're not actually going on a walk, but we're going on a walk as we walk with these two fellas that are walking to Emmaus. And Jesus comes, the third party in the story. Jesus comes and walks with this crew as they walk to Emmaus. And we're just going to come alongside of them. We're going to gather around and we're going to listen to this conversation. We're going to be a fly on the wall or a flaw on the wall, a fly on the wall. Uh, if there was a fly on the wall or a wall walking up beside them as they're walking on the road here, we're just going to come up beside them and listen to this story. And the scene is the resurrected Jesus and two disciples. They're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and we're just going to come alongside of them. We're going to first turn our, turn our attention to verse 13, and we're going to get the story as it gets set up in the first several verses, but we're going to look first at verse 13 to 16. So turn your eyes there. And I'm going to read the word of the Lord yet again. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here's the scene. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're talking about everything that had happened. Can you believe Jesus is dead? We had hoped, we're going to hear in just a second, we had hoped that he'd be the one that would redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the Messiah. We had hoped he was the king. But our hopes and dreams were dashed against the rocks. Jesus is dead. And so they're talking. Jesus draws near. And then we find out clearly they were kept from recognizing him. If you've ever wondered why it was after Jesus was resurrected and people were wondering, why can't we recognize Jesus? Or we're wondering, why couldn't they recognize Jesus? It's because their eyes were kept from recognizing him. God can conceal himself. And later on, we'll see that God can reveal himself to people according to his will. That's in the parameters and within the prerogative of God to be able to conceal and reveal. And we get that demonstrated right here in these first three verses. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? (laughs) So Jesus is kind of putting the ball on the tee for the conversation. He's setting this up, and he's going to direct it the way he wants to direct it. The conversation's going to go. He's going to control the conversation. It's going to go the way he wants it to go. So he's setting it up on a tee, and he's asking them about what you're talking about. What, What is this that you're talking about? Did he know? Of course he knew. When he says what things, he knows exactly what they're talking about. I love it. Uh, He walks up beside them, and it's like he's like, hey, fellas, what's going on? And... uh, We're going to get to see what one author calls the personality of Jesus here. Now, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is now resurrected in his resurrected body. And yet he's still bodily, fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, we get to see some of his personality here. 
In just a little bit, he's going to say, he's going to pretend to go on with them or go a little bit further. They get to Jerusalem and he's going to act like he's walking beyond Jerusalem. And he acts like he's walking beyond Jerusalem to incite something in them. So they would say, no, 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 come with us. So we get to see a little bit of the personality of Jesus here. Jesus is setting these guys up for this conversation. Look at verse 19b. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up, according, uh, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they asked, Jesus asked, what things are you talking about? What things? And then they're like, these things. These are the things that we're talking about as we're walking from Emmaus to Jerusalem. And they declared that Jesus was a man who was mighty in word and deed. He was a prophet. And yet he was condemned to death and delivered over to be crucified to the Romans. And we find out their desire. Why is it that they were so sad? They were so sad because they were hoping that he was the Messiah. And in their mind, as they're, as they're thinking and they're, they're talking, they're, how could anything good come from this? The one we thought that was Messiah. I mean, we walked with him. We did ministry with him. We saw him do the things that nobody else could do. And yet he's dead and he's in the grave. We thought that he would overtake the Roman Empire, not be slain by the Roman Empire. We thought he would be the king of the Jews. And yet, here were the Jews crying out, crucify him. We had hoped he was the one, um, but he's dead. And so they're sad about it. Jesus, as he's drawing near, is listening to this. They say that there is a, actually hope a little bit because they say that there are some ladies that have been talking about maybe he's alive, and yet they still had their doubts. Even though there were other disciples that ran along to the tomb and found it was just as the ladies said it was, they still had their doubts. There was an empty tomb, but maybe, just maybe, they're happy or sad or hopeful, and yet they're lamenting. And then we find that Jesus is the same Jesus. This is more personality here. You know, Jesus, in the course of his ministry, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus is regularly drawing people in and being compassionate to those that need compassion. And then Jesus is regularly repelling people who need to be repelled. And so to some, he weeps. To some, he draws in with tenderness and says, go and sin no more. He who has the first sin cast the stone. Um, and then to others, he calls them hypocrites. Sometimes it seems like out of nowhere. To others, he calls them vipers like John the Baptist. And uh, I don't know if anybody's ever called you a hypocrite or a viper. It's, it's not something that's, that's very fun to be called. Uh, I've never been called a hypocrite or a viper. But Jesus, it's interesting, as he calls people fools before his resurrection, even after, after his resurrection, some of the personality of Jesus still comes out. You know, Jesus' chief virtue was not modern-day niceness. Jesus could say what needed to be said, and if he offended people, he was okay with that. It wasn't his chief goal to be the least offensive person in the world. 
So we see that Jesus is the same Jesus. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As they're talking, saying maybe he's alive, we heard some reports, Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones, oh, foolish ones. They were slow to heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Jesus tells them to reject what the prophets had written or to miss what the prophets had spoken about is to be walking in foolishness. His death and resurrection was based on what God's Word said, and they did not believe what God's Word said about His death and resurrection. What we can take from this is that they should have recognized that He was the Messiah. They should have known that He was not going to stay dead. This is what the prophets spoke about and what they were so slow to believe. And Jesus calls them fools because of it. And here's the deal. According to Jesus... It is foolish to reject the scriptures and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if Jesus says to them who rejected the prophets, you are being foolish, we could likewise say to the world today and to you today who don't know him, who have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, we could say if you have not, then you are walking in foolishness. And let that abrasive word of Jesus Go to these disciples and then into your heart as well. Oh, foolish one who is slow to believe all that the scriptures have declared. You see, what Christ did was declared of old. He didn't just show up on the scene, say what he said, do what he did, die, come back to life. He did what was written of him. This was prophesied about. And some of you in this room, some of our friends and family, continue to suppress that truth, reject what's been declared about Jesus, and continue to walk in foolishness. And Jesus has no problem at all telling them that's foolish, and we should have no problem to you or to anybody and say it's foolish to continue on in the ways that you're living without turning to Christ. Turn to Christ and be saved. Turn to Christ and live. Turn to Christ and walk in wisdom and walk away from foolishness. This is what Jesus says to these disciples who are walking to Emmaus. There is a problem with mankind. And the problem with mankind we see in Romans chapter 1, we see this all throughout the Bible, and even here in this passage, the problem with mankind is that we don't believe what God has said. We reject it. We hyper-criticize it, hyper-analyze it, origami it until we don't have to obey it or until we reject it. But what we see right now, not just in higher criticism, but down throughout all the world, is this rejection of what's plain and clear. There is a God, and He has spoken. And instead of coming, like higher scholarship has done throughout the years, so-called higher scholarship, and came with their criticisms of God's Word, instead of being crit critical of God, we need to be critical of mankind who rejects God and His Word. See, the fundamental problem is always the same. Mankind thinks they know better than God and suppresses the truth. And instead of listening to the prophets, we stone the prophets. Instead of listening to the prophets, we reject the prophets. Instead of listening 
to God. We do what Adam and Eve did, and we plug our ears. And this is the problem of mankind. That doesn't make sense to me, God. Your word isn't as rational as my word or my thoughts right now, God. So I'm going to do things my way rather than God's way. And even on this walk to Emmaus, this short walk, seven miles, Jesus is saying, Oh, foolish ones. This was his disciples. They, they were with him. They walked alongside of him. And they were the ones, even, along with the rest of mankind, that rejected the scriptures. They rejected what the prophets had declared. What prophets? The prophets of old. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The minor prophets as well. They rejected what God had to say in his word. And then Jesus tells them, begins to tell, the, tell them, um, okay, here's what you should have recognized. He doesn't just say, you should have recognized this, and that's it. He begins to tell them how he is the fulfillment of these scriptures. And so in verse 27, we just read it, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is what they should have recognized. This is what the Pharisees should have recognized. This is what the Jews of old should have recognized. And this is what the world, every single person who's ever lived, this is what they should have recognized. Jesus walks with them and interprets to them everything that was declared about him from Moses all the way to Malachi. I would have loved to be there. We've talked about this before. I would have absolutely loved to hear this sermon that Jesus gives them or this conversation he has with them. And if we could come up alongside of them and get dusty with them as we walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we would hear about all the types and shadows. We'd hear about Jesus being the true prophet. Moses was a type and shadow. We would hear about deliverance. We would see, hear about walking through the Red Sea. We would hear about our enemies being vanquished and under the Red Sea. We would hear about the types and the shadows of the blood being spilled from the garden all the way to Malachi. We would hear all about that. And Jesus declaring to them, you should recognize this. It's, it's all over the place. I'm all over the place in the scriptures. And this is a, a point that C.S. Lewis makes, and I think it's important here today. And it's just something to point out here today. With passages like this, Jesus is saying about himself. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, listen to me, please hear this. Jesus does not let you say silly and foolish things about him like this. He doesn't let you say, Jesus was a good teacher, I just don't think he was God. That is the most ridiculous thing you can possibly say. It's the most ridiculous thing any entry-level professor at any college throughout the United States, they all say the same thing. You know, Jesus has some good things. We like the Sermon on the Mount, but we don't recognize that he's God in the flesh. Why do you like what he has to say then? Because he says things like this. And C.S. Lewis talk, talked about this. He said, you know, that Jesus is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. And, and this is a really good example of this. Jesus said about all the Old Testament, that's about me, all of it. And I want to tell you how it's all about me. And if you apply that to anybody that's not God in the flesh, and if I come up to you and say to you, uh, all the scriptures are about me, Jared Sparks, born in 1983, uh, living here in southern Illinois, and every one of these passages in the Old Testament, it's about me. You should rightly fire me immediately, get me out of here, security team, walk me out of here. You shouldn't tolerate stuff like that. 
And if Jesus isn't who he says he is, we need professors all across this land that would at least grow some sort of backbone and say, we reject him, that's crazy talk. Jesus is not a good teacher. He's the worst teacher that's ever existed in the history of the world if he's not God. But if he is God, and he is, then we got, we got to stop saying foolish and silly things like that. And friends, in here, we know that this is true. Jesus really isn't. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He really is who he says he is. In the Old Testament, it's all about him from Genesis all the way to Malachi. He says things that are totally arrogant and crazy unless they're true. So it is really and truly the most asinine, lunatic, crazy, whatever adjectives you want to add on to this thing that anyone could ever say when somebody says Jesus is a good teacher but he's not God because he says things like this. It's the most egocentric thing that you could possibly say unless he's God. And so the conversation is going to continue. As he's laying this out, later they're going to say, did our, not, did our hearts not burn when he declared to us the word? Something's happening in, in the fellows as they're walking with him. Something's happening inside of them as Jesus is declaring the end from the beginning and saying, that, look, uh, from Genesis to Malachi, here I am, all these stories, they're about me, and declares to them all the things in the scriptures that concerns himself, and their hearts are burning. But the story goes on. Verse 28. So they drew near the village to which they were going. This is Jerusalem. Or Emmaus, excuse me. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized them, and he vanished from their sight. They were drawn near to Emmaus, and we see how Jesus works. Again, there's this personality piece that comes out. They're walking. You guys have seen me act this out before. I think we, we talked a little bit about this a few years ago. They're walking on this road, and we're walking with them. And he's like, all right, guys, I'm going to go on. I'm going past Emmaus. And they're like, no, 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 no. no uh, can you... Can you wait? God, Jesus, you know, hey man, the day's far spent. You want to just come? We, got, we can have some food together. Just stay here with us. Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to go with you. It was the plan all along. I love Jesus. Um, we started to break bread together, and we're told that upon the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened. Remember, they were, they were concealed they weren't allowed to know who he was or see who he was. And then at the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened. And what we're told is when their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. For them to recognize Jesus, their eyes had to be opened. It was something they could not do on their own. Something had to happen to them. Their eyes had to be opened. They didn't have this ability within them to see Jesus rightly unless their eyes were to be opened spiritually. They were around Jesus. Their hearts burned within him. We'll just see in a minute. But they could not see him. They could not see him for who he was. But then their eyes were opened. And in that moment, they saw him. Oh my goodness, this is Jesus. And this Jesus who resurrected bodily, which we'll get to more here in a minute, he was physically resurrected. He could eat. He had flesh and bone. He was the firstborn among many brethren. We will be resurrected like Jesus physically. And here is Jesus physically who has the ability to vanish out of thin air. 
Now, some fun and interesting things that we can talk about about the future and the eternal state. This is why many people, if Jesus is the first who is resurrected from the dead, the boundaries that we currently have in this physical universe, it seems to be in the eternal state, will be uniquely different. Do you remember uh, the, the movie uh, Family Matters with Steve Urkel? You guys remember that? Okay. You remember the machine that Steve Urkel had that could take his body particles and move him? There was one where he like, went to France or to Paris. Yeah, Paris is in France. And he had all his body molecules break down. You guys remember that? He had that machine where he could go. TGIF, man, 1993. Um, he had this machine. And it seems like, although Jesus is resurrected bodily, that some could think, well, maybe he was just resurrected spiritually. Maybe he wasn't just resurrected bodily. This is an early heresy of Gnosticism. Jesus really didn't raise from the dead physically. This is all just spiritual. It's all metaphor. Jesus disappears from their midst. Just gone. Okay, well, what's next? Um, we find some more fascinating details. So he vanished. And then the disciples respond. We see their response. Now, if, if we're walking to Emmaus, we get there, and we're with them, and we see Jesus vanish, what are we going to be thinking? Like, what, what are, how are we going to respond? I mean, it's pretty, pretty crazy, right? I've never seen anybody just vanish out of thin air. And here is Jesus that actually did this. It wasn't a trick. It wasn't sleight of hand. It wasn't Chris Angel kind of stuff. He really disappeared right in their midst. Just boom, gone. So they respond. Look at verse 32. They said to each other, did, our hearts not, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them, made known to them at the breaking of bread. So their hearts burned as Jesus was talking to them about the word and saying, here's where I am, here's where I am, and connecting all these dots about Jesus, about the Messiah. Then their eyes were opened. Oh my goodness, that's why our hearts were burning because that was Jesus. They get so excited, they immediately leave Emmaus. They just got to Emmaus and they're like, we got to go back to Jerusalem. So, you ready? Let's go. Seven miles. They just walked from here to Carterville. Now they're walking back from Carterville to Carbondale. We got to get back. We got to get back. We got to tell them. And they get there and they hear from Peter, he's alive. And they're like, yeah, we know. We just talked to him. We went on a walk with him. He's been talking to us. We heard about the Old Testament and Jesus told us all about him and where he was there. It's an incredible thing. We see more of the physicality now that this isn't just... This isn't just a, a, um, a metaphor resurrection. It isn't just a spiritual resurrection. And this is crucial because most heresies about Christ have to do with his life, death, and resurrection, certainly. But many of them have to do with his resurrection and the nature of it. And we have to know that Jesus was resurrected physically, not just spiritually. Likewise, you and I will be brought to life and have been brought to life spiritually, and we will be brought to life physically, Physical body, spiritual and physical. There's arguments about uh, the nature of mankind, whether we're triparts or just uh, two parts, and there's different debates about that. And 
used to be a debate that raged on, and I don't see it as much anymore. But everyone agrees in Christian theology that we are more than just matter. We're more than just material. We're soul. But the other mistake is to believe that we're not matter, that we're not material, and that our material body does not matter. And Jesus coming back to life physically matters. And we see that here in a minute. And we see how glorious this physical resurrection is. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now let's just pause real quick. I love the natural responses. If we're now back, back with them, wouldn't we be startled if somebody just appeared here on the stage? And boom, here I am. They were startled. They were frightened. Verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus had flesh and bones. Continuing on. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. They were talking, Jesus shows up, there was already a buzz in the air, and then here he is, as surely as Jesus vanished from the two in their midst, he appeared from the many in their midst. They were startled as we would be, and he starts to speak, and he says, see my hands and see my feet, it is me. Uh, This is a a principle that remains in the resurrected body. Um, Some people have uh, wrongly believed that when we are resurrected, that we have memory wipe, that it's just memory wipe, we won't know each other. And because of these uh, mythical ideas of the eternal state or the cloud in the sky, it's just hard to get a grasp on what eternity will be like. And it seems more spirit than physical. And uh, we have to keep in mind that it it is both. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's correcting the thought that he's just a spirit. He says it on multiple occasions. They could have thought, and many have thought, no, he just resurrected in spirit. And Jesus explicitly addressed that. This is not just a spirit. See my hands, see my feet, it is me. And he speaks to his personhood. It's me, guys. And this is a truth about our resurrected bodies that I think is, there's so many things about eternity that we don't know. In fact, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived what God has prepared in advance for those who love Him. Like we, we, can't, we can't even understand or even like with, with the, our, our brains fully and firing on all gears, we cannot even conceive of what eternity is going to be like. But we can define at least minimally what it's not going to be like. It's not going to be a disembodied state. It's not going to be a, a, a spirit, just a spiritual soul state. It's going to be a state in which you and I will recognize each other. Jesus says, it's me, guys. See my hands, see my feet. You can place your hands, your your finger in my hand and feel the scar. Most likely, that means some of the bodily scars that you have in your eternal state most likely will be there. You will still be you. Your perishable body will put on imperishable, but we'll know each other. We'll recognize each other. We'll see each other. Our personhood will be there. Like when Jesus, on the the thief of the cross, he says, today, you will be with me in paradise. He's speaking to the thief. You, you, right there, will be with me in paradise. There's a personhood, how you are today, that will be 
forever and ever and ever in your glorified state. And Jesus here, he's touched, he's felt, and he makes the point for us to see that they're touching his body, feeling the scars. Jesus, in rejection of what the Gnostics say, really did come back from the dead bodily. Now, uh, the reason, we've already said, the reason that they did not recognize Jesus after the, direct, after the resurrection, it wasn't because he didn't look like himself, but it was because they were kept from recognizing him. It's not like his physical form had been so transformed that they couldn't recognize when they were revealed, oh, this is Jesus. They were kept. And so I think a conclusion that we can tie here, okay, this is not a hill that I will die on, but I, I think we're going to look like ourselves. We're going to see ourselves. We're going to recognize each other. And we're going to be able to talk to one another. And we're going to have memories of this earth without any sorrow and tears because we will have right judgment about everything. We say, well, how in the world can we have memory about all the things that, that the vapor that we lived? How will we have memory of that without being sad and sorrowful because we have friends and family and neighbors and people that we know are not with us here that are actually condemned to death, that are in hell itself? How can we possibly not find sorrow in that? This is why no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. We will have proper judgment on everything, and we'll have memories. And here's the deal. Um, many of you have lost loved ones. This is why this physical resurrection thing matters so much. You will hug loved ones again. You will feel their body again. As they felt the body of Jesus, we will be able to shake one another's hand, give each other a bro hug. We will, we will know each other and we will be able to talk with one another. Jesus certainly did resurrect bodily and not just spiritually. Now, he had control over his being in one place or another. So somehow, he is body and spirit, both. He had flesh and bones. And even though they were seeing this before their eyes, and this is such a, a thing even to this day, um, doubt and joy were going together within the hearts of these disciples. They're literally seeing this. It happens at the end of Matthew 28 where Jesus is appearing to them and talking to them and is ascending into heaven. And it says, and some doubted as Jesus is like, see guys, I'll be back the same way. And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> and here we see that joy is intertwined with this doubt when he said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet and it said, and they still disbelieved for joy. What a unique way to say that. And they were marveling. Disbelief for joy and were marveling all in the same time. He ate. It's important to know that we will eat for eternity. There's a great feast in heaven. The, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the consummation of the marriage is still to take place. Like there, there's, there's more to come. And we are going to eat in the eternal state. And here's the cool thing about this, something that I just saw this week. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, ate fish. Okay, he ate meat. Now, when we think about the eternal state, we have to go back to Eden. We have to go back to Eden. You've heard me say this before, when Christ returns and everything is restored in the way it is intended to be, there's going to be a global and universal Eden. The, the restoration of all things doesn't stop with earth. Eden will be universal. There'll be a universe. Think the Milky Way galaxy and every millions of galaxies that are out there. This is how potent the resurrection of Jesus is. 
that not just the Milky Way galaxy, there will be a universal Eden. And Jesus, I mean, God commanded Adam, fill the earth and subdue it. And Adam failed to do it. And Jesus will not fail in his global conquest. And he's doing it right now. Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do. But there are things about Eden and things about the eternal state will be very similar, but things that will be different. For instance, there will not be marriage in the same way in the eternal state. In Eden, Adam and Eve came together, the two became one flesh, and sex was created in the garden, and sex is good in the way God has intended it to be, and it is intended to procreate, to fill the earth and subdue it. That This is babies. Make babies as God allows. And this is in the garden. In the eternal state, there will not be baby making in the eternal state. There will not be procreation in the eternal state. There will not be marriage in the same way in the eternal state. So there are some things that are going to be the same and some things that are going to be different. Apparently, this is the same thing with food. In the Garden of Eden, everything was vegetarian, just food. But here, the first resurrected body is eating broiled fish. And in John 21, we see him eating grilled fish with the disciples, with Peter and the boys. They're on the side of the beach eating fish. Now, I don't want to run this out, and again, this isn't a hill to die on here, um, but it seems as if, I think it's a fair conclusion to say that eternity will not be exclusively the food of Eden, but will include post-fall food. That means Brian James and I are going to be able to finish our fish in eternity and catch food and eat broiled fish and baked fish and recipes we've never even heard of because Christ rose from the dead physically and even ate broiled fish. What the resurrected Lord did, we who will go alongside and come alongside of him, he's the firstborn among many brothers, we will also be born with a physical body in the same way, renewed body in that same way, and I think we get to eat fish for eternity. And hopefully things like steak, I don't know how that will work. Hopefully they'll still be hunting. I don't know. It's just a hope. But I know Ryan Deaton's excited because I saw this this week. I was like, I got a box of Ryan Deaton. And I was Ryan Deaton, I, you got to check this out, man. Text the elders. Is this a fair conclusion? Again, not a hill to die on, but here's what is absolutely a hill to die on. Jesus, when he resurrected, did not eat Garden of Eden food. He ate post-fall food. Fish. It's interesting. All of this, uh, Jesus says in Matthew, that uh, in the same way that we see here when he's talking to these guys on the road, that all of this was written from Moses down to Malachi. It's, it's all about me. It's written. Jesus said in Matthew that the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. And we see this even more. Look at verse 44. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now the Jewish scriptures have three categories. We take the same exact Jewish books of the Bible. Um, and we have the exact same, like if you go to hear a Jewish scriptures in our Old Testament, the exact same. The Catholics have added the, uh, the Apocrypha to that. We have the exact same as the Jewish scriptures. They break it down into three categories. The law the Psalms, and the prophets. We have five categories, okay? We have five categories. We have the, the law. We have wisdom literature. We have the, the books of history. We have lit, wisdom literature, major prophets, and minor prophets, okay? But when Jesus said, 
the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's talking about all of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi, which is just categorized different. All, all the scriptures in the Old Testament. And he says that the Son of Man must go, they must be fulfilled. Everything written about me in the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is a crucial, and it's going to be a lot of comfort for, for us in this time of madness. Jesus understands God's sovereign decrees. It's Matthew 26, 24 that says this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. Written beforehand. All declared. And the Son of Man goes, and it must go the way it was written. And here's the deal. Not only does the Son of Man go as it was written, but so does the world. And so do you. Right now, this world seems to be a chaotic mess, doesn't it? Just assessment about the world. Does it seem like it's in the sovereign hands of God? Or does it seem like it's a chaotic mess of insanity? Just We know the truth, right? But it seems like it's a chaotic mess of insanity, doesn't it? Absurdity after absurdity just rolls out in the news and... Every day you're just shocked and awed at how crazy people can actually be. And it just seems like it's a mess. Kind of like Jesus' death did. Kind of look at the world and you think, like, what? Like, seriously, God's at work right now? Where's God? It seems like he's sitting on his hands. It's the, it's the lament of Habakkuk. God, why are you so silent? Why aren't you doing anything about this? Why do you sit idly by as the prophet laments through prayer? These guys were walking to Emmaus. We had hoped. They were sad. We had hoped that he had been the Messiah. But how in the world could anything good come from Jesus' death? Seems chaotic. Seems purposeless. Really? The Roman Empire more powerful than the one who is claiming to be God? Really? These Jewish leaders win? The ones spitting upon him, the ones mocking him, the ones calling out crucify him, and they're the ones that win. What good could possibly, it just seems like a chaotic mess. God is sitting idly by. Jesus said that his life, as he's speaking to this, it's bound to what was written. Evil seems so arbitrary. The son of man, why why does he need to be spit upon? Why does the Son of Man need to be whipped? And then Jesus has the audacity through all that evil that was done to him to say that he had to go. It had to happen this way because it had been written beforehand. The law, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. And philosophers of this day and down through the history of the world despise Jesus' teaching about this. Well, Jesus, don't you know that that's just divine divine determinism? Don't you know that we all just have free will and this world just goes as we decide it to go? Jesus, God has not declared the end from the beginning. That's fatalism. You're telling me you had to go as it was written beforehand of you that all these things mechanically had to work out somehow for it to all happen the way it was written? Do you realize how many things had to go the way they went for Jesus to be marched to that cross? 
The mechanics of that, of the decisions of when to do this and when to do that, of Jesus saying there's going to be a donkey there, a colt tied, and, and I'm going to go into the city and I want you to go get that colt. And the colt was there, the right timing, that colt, you trace that colt's that timeline back, it had to be born. It had to be purchased by these people or raised by these people. It had to be there in that moment. All these things, for them to happen the way it was written, this isn't happen chance. This isn't God just trying to work things out as, as people are... This is God sovereignly moving the things that are in place the way they're in place because they've been written that way. You see William, William Lane Craig being like, no, Jesus, that's divine determinism. And Jesus is like, I had to go as it was written of me. It had to be this way. And here's the deal. God is bigger than my reasoning and your reasoning. God is bigger than philosophers' reasoning abilities. And here's what's so good about this. Jesus and him saying that I have to go as it was written. You know what had to be written then? Every single whip that came down upon his back. Every single cursing that came out of the mouth of those who were crying out, crucify him. Every meticulous thing in those days had to be, they were written beforehand. His betrayal by Judas. Pilate and Herod working in cahoots together. The Sanhedrin. All of this coming together as it was written. Um, there's some good news in this because this is the grossest, most evil, most vile thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. The Lamb of God slain, tortured, beaten, the truly innocent one, treated as a sinner. And Jesus says about it, the Scriptures have declared it, it had to be this way. Why is it good news that the worst evil that ever happened in the history of the world happened according to as it was written? Why is that good news? I want you to hear this. The greatest evil ever devised by Satan in the hands of sinful men was the greatest good that God ever did. I want you to hear that again. The greatest evil ever devised by Satan in the hands of sinful men was the greatest good God has ever done. You see, in this evil, in this confusion, in this chaos, chaos that those that were walking to Emmaus were walking in, in this, these questions, how could anything good come from this? It seems like God is sitting idly by. Why didn't he rescue Jesus? And yet Jesus is declaring it was all written this way. It had to go this way. And yet, in that greatest evil, what the enemy meant for evil, what Herod and Pontius Pilate really meant for evil, what the Sanhedrin, what the Jews, what everybody in Jerusalem who were crying out with fist in the air and spit coming out of their mouth, crucify him. As it was written. As they're screaming out and crying out, 
What is Jesus doing for sinners? What is he doing for the world? What is he doing for the cosmos? He's dying for people who are spitting on him. He's dying for people who are driving nails into his hands. He's dying for real sinners. He's dying for people just like you and me. He is on his rescue mission, and the enemy thinks they're winning. Carmen got this in like the 90s again, to reference the 90s. Remember? One, two, three. And he thinks that Satan's, you know, one, and Satan's like, yeah. And then Jesus comes back and wins. You see, the Bible declares really clearly that Pontius Pilate and Herod were responsible for their actions, and yet it was within the written decree of God. Like so many things I tried to say to you, I don't understand that. Please hear me, because you can get in a philosophical knot about that. I don't understand that. But Jesus says it clearly. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Must be. This is comforting for today because right now, doesn't it seem like God is losing? Doesn't it seem like we are losing? Doesn't it seem like evil is winning? Doesn't it seem like the devil is roaming free in this earth? Um, And yet God is not sitting idly by. When it feels like he's doing nothing, he's accomplishing his purposes. He is working literally in billions of ways right now that we don't see. And every single breath that breathes, every single action in this world, God is there in our midst. Right now, God is winning, and so are we. Uh, That's good news. Uh, Down with the devil, man. The devil, I was telling Jordan this morning, the devil is so dumb. The devil is seeing us worship right now, and his minions and enemies. And even as he is bound, and even as he is limited, he still thinks he can win. What a dummy. And we know, here we are gathering on Easter Sunday declaring that Jesus is Lord and we're not going to stop. And he still thinks he can win. It's good news. Now, Jesus opens their minds. Look at this, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. (laughs) This is unreal. Natural man, even those who are recognizing Jesus here, natural man does not have the ability to understand the things of God. We don't. Uh, mankind hears the things of God or even some of the things that we just heard and thinks, nope, don't get it. It's out there. No way. Natural man does not understand the things of God. What we see in this verse is also true about all special revelation. People cannot understand the truth on their own. People cannot understand the truth on their own. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God, Paul says in Romans. The Christian, the Christian religion is not first and foremost convincing people through reason the truth. It fundamentally has something so much more and something deeper than that. It has to do with bringing dead people to life. You've heard this before, right? 
That Christianity isn't making about, you know, bad people, good people. It's about bringing dead people to life. Praise God for that. But what we see is that people can't understand the truth on their own. Sinners don't have that ability. They suppress the truth. And what's plain and clear, what's right before us in the scriptures, so often continues to be suppressed. Sinners have limitations due to their sinful hearts. And uh, if you're not a Christian here today, um, I want to be intentionally offensive. Okay? Not purposely and uh, not abrasively. But um, if you don't know Jesus today, you can't just make yourself believe it. And we all know this is true. We all know there's times when it comes to God's Word or in, in life in general, we're like, how in the world did I see that before? Anybody ever studied God's Word and you saw something that's like it jumped out of the page, you'd never seen it before? Like, how, it was right there, hidden in plain sight. How did I never see that before? And now I see it everywhere, whatever it is. Like, how did I not see that? And it's God opening our eyes. We know this is true. A non-Christian can't be reasoned into the faith. I can give you points of apologetics, can lay it out, why things are the way they are, why this is reasonable, why this is rational. And you can look at me and say, I don't care, I don't believe it. Because it's not about reasoning ourselves into the Christian faith. What Jesus did here is a need across the board. Something has to happen. Your eyes have to be opened we can say about your ears, your ears have to be opened. Or like Lydia, your heart has to be opened up by God. God has to open up your mind. You can't just reason yourself. And nobody in here, every Christian in here, there's not a single person here that says, I'm a Christian because I got myself here. I reasoned myself here. I thought this out perfectly, and I connected the dots, and that's why I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian because of that. You're a Christian because Jesus opened your eyes just like he did here. And when God opens people's eyes, when he does that, people become Christians, and they, th and they say things like, how did I not ever see this before? Or I've heard this a thousand times. I heard my grandma say this. I heard my grandpa say this. I heard the preacher down the road say this. Every time I, you know, I was a priester, I went on Christmas and Easter and I heard it and it never made sense to me. But all of a sudden, one day, sitting in that pew, or one day, maybe today, everything made sense to you. You wondered, how did I not see this before? Why do I feel differently today than I felt before? I've heard this message and it didn't mess me up on the inside and now I feel like I'm tied in knots and there's worms crawling around on the inside of me and my heart's all in knots and I'm... It's because God's doing something in you. He's opening your eyes. And to every Christian here, we are a Christian because God did this for us. We owe Him everything. I open this saying, I want you to stand in awe of the grace of God again. You know, this statement, it's clear... And he opened up their eyes to understand the scriptures. Oh, I see it now. It's right there. How did I not see that before? Oh my goodness, Jesus is who he says he is. He opened their mind. And friends, that we are recipients of God's grace. If he didn't do that to you, you'd still be walking around in darkness. You'd still be walking around in darkness, the same old you. We owe him everything. But we get to see this further. Look at verse 46 and 47. Uh, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Jesus should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, 
And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. See, it was written that Jesus would live, die, and come back from the grave. It was written. It was written. And what we're to take from this is that repentance and forgiveness of of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to the nations from Jerusalem outward. We're not in Jerusalem today. We're outward. And this is what we declare for the non-Christian. I already said it for the Christian. Stand in all God's grace. For the non-Christian, here's the, the point three or the, the third desire today, is that you would come into a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would open your eyes, that you would repent of your sins and trust in him because there is forgiveness of sins proclaimed in Christ Jesus alone. There's no self-help book that, you can, that can get you there. There's no other religion that can get you there. There's promises that abound everywhere on every street corner and every single TV or whatever about becoming the best you. Or one day, at the end of your life, maybe you can be right with God. But today, right now, because of what Christ did, you can have forgiveness of sins. Turn to Him, and by the grace of God, humbly repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And He will save you. This is the global conquest that I talked about earlier. This is the global conquest. And we have these decisions before us. Like, what what are we going to think about the the reign of Christ right now? Either the nations are going to be His or they're not. Either the Great Commission was given in vain for us to go out and get our butts whipped for 2,000 years. Or, I'm sorry for saying that, if you don't say that B word. For 2,000 years, or we're going to lay hold to promises like the Great Commission. We're going to lay hold to commissions like that and believe that as we proclaim the risen Lord, that he will open people's eyes. And we go out in hope, believing that nobody's too far. That he can save sinners and does save sinners. And we're to declare this to the ends of the earth. That means it's like this ripple effect. The the cross, the resurrection, the water droplet goes down, and this ripple effect goes, and it doesn't just stop with this earth. He does what Adam failed to do, global conquest. Jesus does this. But like I said, it's like it goes out for all eternity, and that way, and that way, and that way, and that way, in this whole universe. Jesus will have what is his. And we can walk in hope. It was written of him. It was written that he would do this. It was announced that he was do this, that he was he would do this. And then he commissions them, those he just walked with and those he just hung out with in Jerusalem. And he he tells them, You're gonna be my witnesses, and you're gonna go. And this is not just for them, it's for us also. They were unique witnesses to his resurrected body. We don't ever get to see until Christ returns his resurrected body. But we are witnesses, and I want you to see this, verse 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power on high. Don't leave Jerusalem until you're clothed with power. Don't step out of this city. But when you're clothed with power, you're going to go out into all the world beyond Jerusalem, and you're going to be my witnesses. And friends, you and I sitting in that room, if we're with them, we hear the same thing. And we know that when that promised spirit comes, we're going to get out there and by the grace of God, we're going to win the world for Jesus. And when we see the truth, when Jesus opens our eyes to this truth, 
And we realize, wait a minute, we have received this promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and indwelt the people of God, no longer to live in temples built by human hands, but in the very temple of God's people. We are now and forevermore witnesses to this resurrected Jesus. And here we are in Resurrection Sunday, proclaiming to you that Jesus is alive and he is not dead. He's alive. And it may feel like nonsense to you. But one day, you're going to see him. You're going to see him. And our message to the world is we are witnesses of his glory. He's opened our eyes. He's changed us. He's saved us. He's forgiven us all of our sins. He's filled, with, filled us with the Holy Spirit. He's given us a body. He's given us friends and family. And he's given us people who care about us. He's given us his word. And we're witnesses of what Christ has done for us. And we're going to be witnesses until he one day returns. Um, where is he now? Well, this resurrected Jesus with this physical body is right now sitting on a throne. And this Jesus who's sitting on his throne reigning and ruling right now with all heaven, with all authority in heaven and earth. He's reigning and ruling right now. And he deserves all of our praise and glory. So Christians, we get to stand in awe. My hope is to go back through them that God has been honored through the preaching of his word. That Christians would stand in awe of his glory and praise him for it. Realize that this resurrected Lord deserves all praise and glory. And that non-Christians, that maybe today, today is the day that he's opening your eyes. And you'll know because you'll feel it inside. You'll know because you'll think about these things and believe these things when before you didn't think about them and you didn't believe them. And my hope and prayer is that you'll stop being foolish today and that you'll repent and be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.